Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, 1 Samuel, chapter 19. Now as we began 1 Samuel chapter 19 last week, King Saul openly announced what was it one time, only a secretive, dark, inner desire that had grown to become an obsession for him to kill David. He told his royal court, including his son Jonathan, that if any of them had the opportunity, they needed to take it and dispose of David. We only read the first ten verses of the chapter, chapter 19. So let's review it by reading the chapter in its entirety so we can get it in the best possible context. Turn to uh, page 319 if you have a complete Jewish Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Shaul told Yehonatan his son and all of his servants that they should have uh, Dawid killed. But because Jonathan was very fond of David, he told him, My father Saul is out to have you killed, therefore you must be very cautious tomorrow morning. Find a well-concealed place to hide in. I'll go out and stand next to my father in the countryside where you're hiding. I'll talk with my father about you, and if I learn anything, I'll tell you. Well, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, The king shouldn't sin against his servant David, because he hasn't sinned against you. On the contrary, his work for you has been very good indeed. He put his life in his hands to attack the Philistines. And Adonai accomplished a great victory for all Israel. You saw it yourself. You were happy about it. So, why do you want to sin against innocent blood by killing David without any reason? Shaul heeded Yehonatan's advice and swore, As Adonai lives, he will not be put to death. Jonathan called David, and he told him all these things. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul to be in attendance on the king, just as before. Well, war broke out again, and David went out and fought the Philistines, and he defeated them with a great slaughter, and they fled before him. And Then an evil spirit from Adonai came upon Shoal as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing his lyre, and when Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear... He dodged it and moved out of Saul's way so that the spear stuck in the wall. David fled, so that night he escaped. But Shaul sent messengers to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. Michal, David's wife, told him, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be dead. So Michal let David down through the window and and he left, fled, escaped. Michal took the household idol laid it on the bed, put a goat's hair quilt at its head, and covered it with a cloth. When Shaul sent messengers to capture David, she said, Well, he's ill. Saul sent the messengers to see David with the order, Bring him up to me, bed and all, so that I can kill him. But when the messengers entered, there before them was the household idol in the bed with the goat's hair quilt at its head. Saul asked Michal, Why did you deceive me this way and let my enemy go and escape? Michal answered Saul, He threatened me. 
Let me go or I'll kill you. David fled and escaped, and then he came to Samuel at Ramah, told him everything Saul had done to him. So he and Samuel went and stayed in the prophet's dormitory. The news reached Saul that David had been seen at the prophet's dormitory in Ramah, and Saul sent messengers to capture David. But when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and leading them, the Spirit of God fell on Saul's messengers, and they too began prophesying. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, but they too began prophesying. Saul sent messengers a third time. They also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramon. When he arrived at the, the big cistern in Sehu, he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And someone answered, They're at the prophet's dormitory in Ramah. While on his way to the prophet's dormitory in Ramah, the Spirit of God fell on him too. And he went on prophesying until he arrived at the prophet's dormitory in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes. He prophesied in Samuel's presence and lay there naked all that day and all that night. Hence it continues to be an expression. Is Saul a prophet too? Saul has made David public enemy number one of his kingdom. But Jonathan is perplexed at how his father could come to such a conclusion about Jonathan's dearest friend when the evidence seemed to make David a selfless hero of Israel rather than some conniving rebel, as the king says he is. Now, Shaul's dark moods and outbursts were now infamous, if not to the public at large, certainly to the king's court and to his family. Yet as we move through chapter 19 and on into 20, Jonathan on the one hand acknowledges his father's rash behavior and pronouncements, but on the other sees them more as impulsive and fleeting and, and, and not really reflective of his, his true nature. And so he sees no danger for David. Now, although I was fortunate to have been born into a Christian home with gentle and caring and loving and stable parents, I'm also deeply aware of the sadly large segment of society who've been subjected to a very different reality than that. I've personally known and counseled and at times simply witnessed the destruction of children at the hand of alcoholic or drug addicted parents. A home that my wife and I owned in Southern California was used for many years as a safe haven and rehabilitation center for runaway and abused teenage girls. And common to all of them were that these battered children tended to make excuses for their parents' behavior. Horrendous behavior. Most of them, in time, voluntarily, against the advice of the caregivers, returned to that same environment convinced that this time things would be different. Somehow it's just beyond our human nature to accept 
that the people who gave us life would be bad or depraved people who fully intended to do what they did to us. They'd do it again if they got a chance. So Jonathan was just like all of us. He simply couldn't bring himself to accept his father's occasional words about killing David as more than perhaps moments of frustration or of bouncing emotions brought about probably by the unrelenting stress of being the king. And he thought that maybe this would eventually give way to the decent and rational man Jonathan thought his father to be. Thus, as a good son, Jonathan tries to soothe Saul's concerns about David by pointing out what a loyal and courageous and upright servant to the king he had been. Also pointing out that from a legal and a spiritual standpoint, since David was innocent of any discernible wrongdoing, that if Saul had David killed, he and the kingdom would suffer from blood guilt. And blood guilt is a grievous sin for which there is no atonement under the Levitical law system of the Torah. But Saul's nature has so deteriorated without the Lord's presence upon him that coupled with his homicidal intentions is paranoia, suspicion, distrust, even towards his own family. So at the conclusion of Jonathan's plea for Saul to reconsider his order to assassinate David, the king seems to relent. So he swears an oath never to kill him. Jonathan takes all that fully to heart. It's his father. He believes the matter is resolved. But the king only vowed because he suspected that Jonathan sided with David. The vow was only to deceive his son in hopes that this false message of peace would be communicated to David and thus David would let his guard down. Jonathan cheerfully reports to his friend that all is well. He should come back unafraid to the palace, resume his duties as the king's musician and and his best field commander. David reluctantly complies. Verse 8. We see that again war broke out with the ever-present Philistines who desired to keep their land trade routes open without interference that connected their valuable seaports on the Mediterranean to all their customers to the east and to the north. These routes, of course, wound directly through Israel. And all kings and and, and tribal leaders wanted a piece of the action, as did Saul, as a price for these Philistine merchants venturing through their territory. Thus, in the Middle East, you see, there was this constant tug of war over territorial control, and usually it wasn't so much uh, to expand the nation's boundaries as it was merely to to lord over the people to create an economic advantage for the conqueror. Certainly kings arose that had empire building in mind. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians. 
But that wasn't the intent of the Philistines, so far as we know. The subject of the war is brought up in this passage only to highlight that David once again defeated the enemy Philistines and that the same Philistines that his predecessors had so little luck in putting down. One would think that King Saul would be thrilled that he had a military commander that seemed never to lose. But for this king, it only served to heighten his paranoia and to rekindle his certainty that David was a threat to his throne and he had to be neutralized. So again Saul hurls his javelin that essentially had become his his scepter and his symbol of power. He hurls it at David. David was able to dodge it and escape. Well, from here forward, David becomes a fugitive. As long as Saul is alive and on the throne, David's life is going to be one of living on the run. David has married Michal. Saul's younger daughter after the spear incident and David turns up missing Saul is certain that David will return home to his young wife for sanctuary and so the king sends what most Bibles as does the complete Jewish translates in verse 11 as messengers to lie in wait for him the word in Hebrew is a familiar one for us Malach, Malach, Malach does indeed mean messenger, but it also is often translated as angel. In fact, it's the only Hebrew word used for angel. So we see that Malach has a very different meaning depending on its context. Perhaps when translating Malach in to modern 21st century English, a better general word than message is probably representative. Representative. In other words, in our day, a messenger is more like a low-level courier. Someone who has no authority, no power, they just deliver a message as is. But a representative is an agent for whomever they serve. They can act within limitations on behalf of the one who sent them. Biblical malachim, the plural, of every type usually seem to have some degree of power and authority. Heavenly angels are much more than low-level couriers of God's word. They can also carry out God's will and even bring forth His wrath. So the so-called messengers that Saul sent were undoubtedly soldiers or perhaps his royal bodyguards performing a personal task on behalf of the king and their, their assignment was kill David. David arrives home but his wife is aware that these assassins are waiting to make their move. How does she know about this? Well, she is, after all, the king's daughter. 
And while her father no doubt kept this plot from her, she still had eyes and ears loyal to her inside that palace. It's never been any different. No matter how hard the leadership tries to maintain secrecy, husbands reveal things to wives, men to girlfriends, servants overhear things they shouldn't hear and they gossip, soldiers stand around campfires and share scuttlebutt. We don't know with certainty where David and Michal were living, but it was for sure a walled city. There's a good chance their home was still in uh, Gibeah, Saul's hometown. Well, King Saul specifically instructs his men to wait overnight and then kill him as he emerges from his home in the morning. Now, reminiscent of Rahab, and her helping the Israelite spies escape from Jericho. David and Michal's house must also have been built into the city wall. Something that, whoop, something that uh, is not all that unusual for, for that era. After dark, Michal lowers David down from their window to what can only have been outside the city wall, and so he flees undetected. Well, now knowing that David didn't come out in the morning, the assassins would come into their home and kidnap him from his bed, Michal sought to buy time by making it appear that David was still in bed asleep. Now let's be clear. We don't have two completely separate incidents here as some scholars claim. There are some that will say in verses 11 through 13, Saul sent a group of men to get David And then, apparently, having been unsuccessful some days later, they go back and try it again. Rather, what this is, is a literary style among the so-called chroniclers, whereby they will give a very broad explanation of some event, and then in a few verses, they'll back up a little bit to add some detail. These chroniclers are so called because generally speaking they weren't the namesake of the book or in any way even involved in the historical events that are being recorded and and retold in our Bibles. Rather they have taken scattered information and traditions about an event or a time period, organized them, editorialized them to some unknown degree and then put them down in some kind of coherent order for the purpose of retelling the story. The books of Samuel and Kings were written by chroniclers. Now verse 16 explains that when the king's representatives burst into David's home, there in bed was a teraphim with some goat's hair laid on top of its head. Obviously made to look like David was there because he was ill. Now it's kind of hard not to laugh when one gets a good mental picture of young Michal frantically trying to figure a way to give her beloved husband a little bit more of a little more time for his getaway and she determines that she's going to use this strange wooden cult object covered up with a blanket adorned with a toupee of goat's hair as a suitable ruse. And this, of course, only if the bad guys 
don't go away once she informs her or informs them that her husband's not feeling well today. All right, and couldn't they come back later to assassinate him? <laughs> well, most Bibles will translate what she found, what they found in the bed, as the household idol, and that is correct. The Hebrew is teraphim, and while the Bible term is a general one that can indicate almost any kind of idol, it's also true that as the biblical era rolled along, it came more specifically to refer to a a very standard and widespread use of household idols formed into human shapes as opposed to idols that one might find in official use at a temple to a god. Now what's interesting is that this one was apparently near human size. But what's concerning is David had it in his own home. Now in my research, I came across all sorts of speculations about this teraphim in David's house. And one of the the most popular was, well, it must have belonged to, to, to Michal. And David merely allowed it, you know, being newlyweds and all. Perhaps. But there's no evidence of that, just speculation. Nonetheless, it was certainly a wrong thing and indefensible for David to have such an abomination in his own house. I mean, it violates the very heart of Torah. David, God's anointed king, clearly possessed a life-size idol. This isn't going to be the last of many flaws in his character and sins that he commits. It's going to be exposed in these coming chapters. Well, Saul brings his daughter in for questioning. Demands to know why she would deceive him. Wow. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Or maybe the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. huh? But again, Saul doesn't mince words. And he refers to Michal's husband, David, as Saul's enemy. Which, of course, explains Michal's response when she blatantly lies and tells her enraged father that David made her do it under threat of death. Now, one can only imagine King Saul's hatred intensify as his own children become more and more embroiled in this conflict between he and David. And lest we get so involved in this riveting story that we forget that it establishes a pattern for the future conflict between God's messianic king and the anti-king, anti-messiah who is battling God for the throne. What an interesting similarity we notice as those who Saul feels ought to be loyal only to him find his eternal enemy more attractive. And Saul's reaction as the anti-king is to progressively act out more irrationally, more violently, not only against the God-anointed king, 
but against those who choose by their own free will to put their trust and faith in Him. Thus we are to expect that as history progresses to its well-defined end, as prophesied in Revelation, we will find Satan going to greater and greater length to persecute those who belong to Messiah. And this because the evil one is getting more and more desperate as his plans unravel, as his time for destruction gets very near. Look around you today. See if that isn't exactly what's happening on an unprecedented worldwide scale. Verse 18 explains that upon Michal lowering David down from the, the window of their home into the, uh, in the city wall, David now flees to Samuel in Ramah. Starting about now, we find David creating prayers and petitions to the Lord that are so poignant and deep that they will eventually be recorded and gathered together as psalms. In fact, one psalm is dedicated to this particular event that we're reading about here in 1 Samuel 19. Psalm 59. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. I'll give you a minute to get there. Psalm 59. See if it's a complete Jewish Bible. What is it? 847. Okay. It's not a terribly long psalm. We're going to read it all. For the leader set to do not destroy by David, Amichtam, when Shaul sent men to keep watch on David's house in order to kill him. My God, rescue me from my enemies. Lift me up out of, my, out of reach of my foes. Rescue me from evildoers. Save me from bloodthirsty men. For there they are, lying in wait to kill me. Openly they gather themselves against me, not because I committed a crime or sinned, Adonai. For no fault of mine they run and prepare. Awaken to help me and see. You, Adonai, Elohei Tzavot, God of Israel, arouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those wicked traitors. They return at nightfall, snarling like dogs as they go around the city. Look what pours out of their mouth. What swords are on their lips as they say to themselves, No one's listening anyway. But you, Adonai, laugh at them. You mock all the nations. My strength I will watch for you. My God is my fortress. God who gives me grace will come to me. God will let me gaze in triumph at my foes. Don't kill them or my people will forget. Instead, by your power, make them wander to and fro, but bring them down, Adonai, our shield. For the sin their mouths make with each word from their lips 
Let them be trapped by their pride for the curses and falsehoods they utter. Finish them off in wrath. Finish them off. Put an end to them. Let them know to the ends of the earth that God is ruler in Jacob. They return at night, fall snarling like dogs. As they go around the city, they roam about looking for food, prowling all night as if they didn't get their fill. But as for me, I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing aloud of your grace. For you are my fortress, a refuge when I am in trouble. My strength, I sing praises to you. For God is my fortress, God who gives me grace. Now what makes the Psalms so beloved by Jew and Christian alike is because they are so humanly honest. They display such a transparency. In the vernacular of my surfing youth, when it's David who is speaking, he just lets it all hang out. But many of the Psalms also display a mysterious quality about them that seems to interweave the present with the future. Now, many Bible scholars are quite uncomfortable with this concept, and so they attempt to explain it away in a a number of methods by saying that those particular Psalms were were ham-handedly edited at a later date in order to achieve that mysterious quality or that we today completely misunderstand their purpose or that we have on our mo- what we have in our modern bibles is corrupted and inaccurate now particularly beginning in the 1700s coinciding with the european enlightenment period many of the church's scholars adopted and then adapted the philosophies of the enlightenment to the church and they so they decided that there was no such thing as miracles. And thus, we had to find our scriptural truth within the realm of the natural. Or that whatever seemed mysterious simply indicated textual error or ancient superstition that had no legitimate place in modern rational religion. That mindset is really the basis of most modern Christian scholarship that we're familiar with today. And as you can imagine, I reject many of the conclusions produced from that kind of mindset. So the way I prefer to present this mystery of some of the Psalms is that what was occurring when they were written was the shadow, but the fuller event the eventual manifestation yet to come, was in the future. What was actually occurring, and so what was meant, at the time of the creation of these many petitions to God, was quite real and tangible. And yet, it's somehow also connected to a future time in redemption history that the writer may not even have been conscious of. Or necessarily even intended. I've struggled for years to find the words to understand and to illustrate and and communicate this obvious but perplexing biblical mystery. And some time ago I settled on calling it 
the reality of duality. Because there is a dual quality of these particular psalms that speaks of the now and of the later simultaneously. They also speak of the physical and the spiritual operating simultaneously, side by side, but unseen and unknown to the human author. Then again, that is the very nature and outcome of God-established patterns, isn't it? Now, I only want to briefly examine a couple of parts of this Psalm 59, specifically verses 6, 9, and 14. The first few verses of this psalm, we find David in a very anxious state, pouring out his fears and and, and asking for deliverance from the Father. Saul has hired men to kill David, and David is stating his case. He's boldly pleading his innocence. He's asking the Lord to institute his justice, because the kind of justice that Saul is bringing upon David is unfair, and it defies the Torah. The first five verses, in light of what we just read in 1 Samuel 19, 11-17, are pretty much straightforward. But then we hit this very odd sixth verse. You, Adonai, Elohim Tzavot, God of Israel, arouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those wicked traitors. Arise to punish all the nations? What in the world does that have to do with those bloodthirsty assassins sent by Saul to kill David? How are nations involved in this matter? Later in verse 9, after David continues to characterize these men who are lying in wait for him as evil dogs who just go around snarling, we get, but you, Adonai, laugh at them. You mock all the nations. Mock all the nations. What do the Gentile nations have to do with the king of Israel, Saul, sending some of his loyal men to kill David? Starting in verse 10, we see David's fears begin to subside as God's peace comes over him. His frenzy turns to a kind of resolute anger. Hope emerges since God's in charge, rules over everything, everyone, every situation. Thus he determines that if it's God's will to rescue him, like he's asking, then God's going to put an end to his enemies. And he adds, in verse 14, Finish them off in wrath. Finish them off. Put an end to them. Let them know to the ends of the earth that God is the ruler over Jacob. Let them know to the ends of the earth that God is ruler in Jacob, meaning Israel. This is not an international incident going on here. This is an internal Israeli matter. This is all about the current Israelite king trying to dispose of an Israelite rival. The point is, 
those three verses don't seem to fit very well in the context of David's current circumstances. But they certainly do fit well into a future time when Yeshua and all of His disciples are being persecuted not only by the heathen nations, but by the Hebrew believers, but but rather the Hebrew believers are also being persecuted even by their Hebrew brothers who don't trust in Messiah Yeshua for salvation. And of course, it is the anti-king, anti-Christ's ruler, Satan, who, who is ordering his demons and all those humans who heed his voice to go out, pursue and kill those who are loyal to Christ and to the God of Israel. 1 John 2.18 Children, this is the last hour. You have heard that an anti-Messiah is coming, and in fact, many anti-Messiahs have arisen now, which is how we know this is the last hour. John 16.1 I've told you these things so that you won't be caught by surprise. They will ban you from the synagogue. In fact, the time will come when anyone who kills you thinks he's serving God. They will do these things because they have understood neither the Father nor me. But I've told you this so that when the time comes for it to happen, you'll remember that I told you. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 19. David fled to Ramah, where Samuel lived. It's right up in here. You see Ramah, Mitzpah, Gibeah. And it doesn't take long before Saul finds out where David's hiding. And we're told that David and Samuel went to stay in Naot. Now, Naot translates more or less literally to at the camps. So some Bible translations will say that the pair went from from Ramah to a camp where a sect of prophets lived. But it appears that while Naot translates to at the camps, in reality it's just the proper name of a place. Okay. The complete Jewish Bible assumes that the meaning is that there was a sort of dormitory for Samuel's flock of prophets located there. In any case, there was some kind of settlement. And, and, And that's where they were reported to Saul as being found. Now it makes sense that they would not stay in Ramah since it's probably only a a couple of hours walk from uh, Gibeah, Saul's hometown. Now in verse 20, Saul dispatches some more of his henchmen to capture David, but a really strange thing happens. They arrive in Naot when some of these prophets were prophesying And the soldiers, too, were overcome, and they started prophesying, thus they couldn't fulfill their duty. When Shaul heard about it, he sent another contingent of men to capture David. Exactly the same thing happened to them. He did this a third time. Identical results. 
frustrated, Saul decides he's going to have to go there himself. Well, on the road to Naot, suddenly the Spirit of God overcame Saul. And he not only started prophesying, but he stripped off his clothes in Samuel's presence and lay there all day and night. Now, to a modern Christian, this is just plain odd. Well, it is to me. But here's what we can know about this incident. In our study of the Torah, we learn something interesting about holiness and uncleanness. They're contagious. Holy temple instruments and furnishings could infect a common object or person with holiness if they came into contact. And so this contact between the holy and the common was carefully guarded against. An unclean Hebrew could touch a clean Hebrew and transmit uncleanness to him. A person with sarat could transmit his defilement to a chair. And then that chair could infect the next person who sits in it. But even though these all have spiritual consequences, they are all physical effects that have resulted from physical contact. These things all occurred, in other words, in the physical sphere. In our principle, though, of the reality of duality, there is a higher and better spiritual counterpart to this. That's what we're witnessing here in the last few verses of chapter 19. See, what prophesying means in the context of these final verses is that the prophets of Naot were speaking the word of God. Now, I don't necessarily mean they were quoting what we would call scripture. Rather, they were speaking the holy truth, a truth that God must have revealed to them. I can only conclude that they were speaking the truth that David, who was there with them, was God's anointed king. Saul, who was coming after him, was not. And when Saul's soldiers encountered this word of truth, it was so powerful that it infected them, so to speak, with its truth. And they understood they couldn't possibly carry out what they had been sent to do. No physical object or human being touched these men so that holiness and righteousness would be transmitted into their evil hearts. It was accomplished by their hearing the spoken word of God. We are witnessing the spiritual counterpart to the physical infection of holiness that comes from object to object or human to human or human to object contact. Only, of course, the spiritual is far more awesome in its effect than the physical. And it occurs in the spiritual sphere. The truth contained in God's word 
is so powerful, it can change evil men's hearts and minds and what they think they're out to do in an instant. Now, does that seem so odd to you when put that way? Of course not. Every believer who has ever lived has experienced this exact thing, whether we ever thought of it that way or not. It's a bedrock principle of the salvation experience. The effect of God's Word upon those men resulted in what was happening here at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 19. It even overcame Saul such that he just couldn't continue in his own plot that day. Now, getting near the end here. The part about Saul stripping off his clothes is interesting and profound, actually. Because it is directly related to the incident that takes place a few years later when we find David remove his royal clothes, don a linen ephod, a priestly garment, and dance before the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what we need to understand. Kings always wore royal attire that set them apart as royal. The royal clothing may have been something as simple as a special pattern or fringe sewn into the hem of a garment. Or it could have been as complex as a magnificent robe. But either way, it was always symbolic of a king's supreme authority. The word of God's truth caused Saul to remove his royal garments and lay them down before Samuel and before God. The force of God's word virtually compelled him to take off of his body what was not legitimately his to wear. The symbols of kingly authority over God's people and over God's kingdom of Israel. David now, years later, did something quite similar on the one hand, quite different on the other. Upon the Ark of the Covenant arriving to where David was located, he voluntarily and with joy stripped off his royal garments because the true king of Israel has just arrived, Yehovah. David didn't remove his clothes in some kind of pagan ritual, nor was he being rash, nor an exhibitionist. <laughs> he didn't dance naked as is often erroneously stated in the scriptures confirm he wasn't naked. Rather, he humbly set aside his kingly garments for those of a priest's ephod. Because a priest is first and foremost a servant. God's earthly servant. David's spiritual instincts told him he couldn't possibly hold himself up as royalty in the presence of the ultimate king. What's the difference between what Saul did and what David did? All the difference in the world, that's all. 
It's the difference between being exposed for being a fraud and divinely subjected to shame versus a humble willingness to divest oneself of authority and offer it up to the divine. Saul's kingly robes were removed because of shame. David removed his as an act of humility and then he exchanged them for those of a priest servant. So to end the day, I have a question for us all. When will we voluntarily take off our robes of authority over our lives and place them at the feet of the Lord and exchange them for garments of a servant? Or will we continue to hold on tight to our robes of authority and in time be subjected to shame as they're ripped away from us at the judgment that's to come for all men? Because all humankind will ultimately lay down our robes before God. Just as both the anointed king and the anti-king did. One way was meant for salvation. The other was for destruction. What's it going to be for you?